welcome once again to another episode of the Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is a very special guest, Rick Mansky, CEO at Parsec Financial, with approximately $2.6 billion in assets under management. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Adam. Glad to be here. So, Rick, um, I always like to begin. Can you tell us your story and how you got involved in the business? Uh, you, you sure can. Um, I, it was actually uh, the, the moment of revelation that you know, came upon me when I realized I wanted to be in the business was actually the sophomore year of my college experience. Um, I was yet to declare a major, and uh, Western Michigan University um, um, contacted me and said, uh, Mr. Mansky, it's time to uh, uh, commit to a, to a major. And uh, I had a hard time making that uh, decision, and my dad, who was a CPA um, and in business, uh, kind of gave me a pep talk, and we, we reviewed ideas, and, and a degree in business really just made sense um, and was so utilitarian, sort of the Swiss Army knife of, of degrees. So from there, I, I kind of got engaged in the curriculum uh, and, and, and took various accounting classes and other business classes. and. Was, was kind of moving along, but it was right at the moment that I was in a finance class that was fully exposing me to the time value of money, that it was sort of at that young age that I realized that I would be a millionaire and that I, I understood how that would work and how I could do that. And I also thought I wanted at that moment to pursue a field, uh, a career choice that would allow me to help other people uh, become a millionaire. Um, so that was sort of my, I guess that isn't what got me into the business as much as that was my genesis moment for for choosing the career path. And from there, I, I kind of began uh, my informal education as a retail stockbroker with Shearson Lehman Brothers and quickly realized that um, it wasn't just time value money and finance. It was a lot of marketing and communication and and that came naturally uh, for me. I, I love to talk to people, and I love uh, particularly talking about the importance of saving money and investing money. But something was missing in that uh, in that um, period of time. The transaction based model that I was in uh, didn't make it easy to structure client interactions in such a way that we could focus on a relationship and a process over time. But it was more transactional and. And, 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 and it was sort of a moment of disillusionment, and I actually left the industry for a short time uh, and um, ended up as a um, manufacturer's representative and learned some other skill sets, but then came back to regional uh, banking and, and started to hone my desire. And, and that's where I pretty much lined up with, uh, I wanted to, 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 to get the CFP designation, and I wanted to work for a fee-only RIA. So... As it turned out, um, I just celebrated my 23rd anniversary at Parsec Financial, and uh, it was it was at that time that we moved to Asheville, North Carolina, um, and I met um, Bart Boyer and Jack Smith, the original principals of Parsec, and they were at a point of needing another advisor, and um, the offer at the time was very light on pay and benefits, but it was filled with performance-based opportunity and I was young, confident, and aggressive, and, and, and to this day, uh, we still have a very entrepreneurial culture. Um, so I'm, I'm actually a G2, Generation 2 uh, owner um, um, in an RIA firm. So that's 
sort of what got me started in 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 the direction of this career, but uh, also some steps uh, along the way. And and um, 23 years later, I'm really glad to uh, be CEO of Parsec Financial. Well, congratulations! That's an excellent story, and I love the fact that you uh, had that epiphany, if you will, at an early age. For just to help the audience, if anyone's not familiar, can you just explain? Uh, the time value of money, since this is a primarily timeless educational show. So I'd love to take that lesson and run with it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's, it's a simple um, compounding of, of values. And we learn these mathematical concepts uh, at a young age, but oftentimes uh, the, uh, the math class doesn't get uh, converted into the real life aspects of uh, being able to compound wealth and um and, and also uh, how to work with uh, paying off debt. So uh, compound interest and compound investment returns is at the heart of most financial decisions. And uh, um, the old rule 72 is something that when, when I first learned that mathematical uh, nuance, I, I found it fascinating where you take um, uh, a a number, it could be a rate of return, uh, and, and divide into the number 72, and it approximates uh, how long it will take to double uh, an investment. And uh, so uh, a 10% rate of return divided into 72, it's about seven years, 7.2 years that you would uh, be invested before you doubled your money. Uh, I find that uh, that is sorely misunderstood in society largely. And there's still actually a pretty significant opportunity for financial advisors and different business models to really message that to uh, a populace that I think is sometimes uh, just unaware of that kind of magic uh, of compounding. Uh, And sadly, a lot of money rests uh, earning, you know, 2%. 2%, um, which might take take a, almost a lifetime to double your money, uh, t- t- taking, you know, 30, 35, uh, 35 plus years. So it, it makes a, a great deal of sense. Uh, it, it is very plain, vanilla, and simple to understand, but sorely misunderstood, um, sadly. You know, that's a really, really good point, too. And and I love the fact that you, you noted that a lot of the big population, they don't get it or they just don't focus on it. They're too caught up in the latest headline du jour or the latest, you know, the tick in the market or whatever the case may be. And they miss, you know, looking at the leaves on the trees, I like to say, not even the trees, and they miss the entire forest. Yeah, that's for sure, Adam. So, um, Rick, tell us a little about your investment strategy. Well, um, when I came to Parsec, uh, um, I, I was lucky enough to, to join up with Bart Boyer, and he was a great mentor and was very, and is very, still very passionate advocate of the stock market and uh, the use of uh, the market in a long-term way, in a broadly diversified way, um, emphasizing low cost and, and a buy and hold strategy with, with no market timing. And uh, Jack Smith, who was his partner, was also a great mentor on the importance and value of financial planning. So here at Parsec, uh, we've worked hard to fuse together uh, those two experiences I had then about to, to help convey to clients how the financial plan informs the asset allocation, which then is the biggest driver of the performance of the portfolio. 
So putting planning first, um, um, rather than just having some amazing ability to um, to, to tr- a trading strategy or a, um, some kind of portfolio construction strategy strategy that's going to drive returns, instead we allow the, the plan to really inform the portfolio. Um, and different than many advisors, um, we uh, use individual stocks. And, and uh, to this day, we run a large cap core equities portfolio for the large cap sleeve of the portfolio. Uh, we sometimes rotate that out for some large cap ETFs. Um, but we do like the use of individual stocks. It allows us to work with existing uh, holdings that clients have, oftentimes appreciated holdings, allows us to work around those. It certainly allows us to customize the, the, the dividend yield of the portfolio, uh, to focus on the quality balance sheets that we, we, we tend to look for. Um, we focus very much when, when, when managing those companies for uh, companies with strong um, cash flows and growing cash flows and hopefully favorable trends. Uh, we use fundamental security analysis uh, and customize uh, portfolios to the unique uh, financial planning considerations that face individual investors. Um, we believe also very much in a globally diverse portfolio with low fees and broad diversification. And we focus on a fixed allocation and avoid market timing. So it ends up being very plain vanilla, but uh, we, we it's not boring. Uh, we, we, we keep it um, um, active and lively with our clients by always interfacing with them about the in, the inputs to their financial plan that are in a constant change, um, whether it's the, their life circumstances or whether it be a, a new tax, uh, tax reform act or uh, just the changing nature of markets and the economy. Uh, so having been in business since 1980, uh, we've worked with many people for over 30 years. So we, we, we've been with them as they saved and invested as young people. Uh, we were there as they retired and we transitioned portfolios so that they were able to live on them throughout their life. And it's, it's been very rewarding. Uh, and the investment strategy is that of, I would say, um, you know, value orientation, but a modern portfolio theory and asset allocation um, not really designed with a risk tolerance questionnaire, but rather using the financial planning process to inform that asset allocation um, and, and and also keep us abreast of the changing circumstances of our clients' lives. That's a great way of putting it. So basically, the true driver of returns from your standpoint would be plan first, allocate second, opposed to allocate first and then cross your fingers and hope the market goes up. Yeah, very much. I think that, um, you know, we like to take risk uh, only when we really have to, um, and then to also understand very much the cash flows of uh, our clients and doing cash flow planning. Really, it's very much an art to make sure that um, when you're taking risk in the equity markets, that you don't have some of your capital that you don't that you may need in the short or intermediate term exposed to the vagaries of the world uh, and the stock market um, and then be sadly forced to having to sell stocks at a low point. It's one thing to to be a buy and hold investor and many people can be counseled to hold through market volatility, but sometimes it's just a function of an advisor or a client, an investor doesn't necessarily plan their cash flow 
um, accurately enough. And along comes a new roof as well as an unexpected tax bill in one year uh, where they're having to go to their equities allocation and sell uh, in the midst of a downturn. That's something we work very hard to avoid. So that's a really, really good point. It actually segues perfectly to my next question. How do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Well, I really feel that um, this one is um, uh, behavioral financial advice uh, is really going to be, uh, is, is always been one of the most important um, aspects of hiring a financial advisor um, because in an attempt to avoid uh, risk, I think some investors <laughs> create risk, and that's either by investing too conservatively and exposing oneself to the insidious nature of purchasing power risk, or by being overconfident and positioning too much of their money, too much of their assets in a specific industry or asset category because they have a strong belief that it's the right thing to do. And they or might just be avoiding another category that they feel is not good. And, and then by definition, have too much exposure to whatever their bias is. And uh, uh, that is a, is a big, um, in helping people over the years, I've noticed uh, where people cr- can really create that risk by trying to actually avoid risk. They're, tr- they're in, in an attempt to avoid risk, they create more. Um, something you just have to admit when investing, that there's a certainty of uncertainty. Right. And that um, uh, any good fiduciary, um, it, it's, a, it, it's really appropriate to let their client know that in spite of all that they read and all that they study and all that they know, that there's a reasonably high probability of being wrong with one's thoughts. Absolutely. And that no one has a predictive capacity to be right all the time over the long term. Right. So getting just getting comfortable with that is very important when trying to reduce risk. And by definition... Um, an investor that's you know broadly diversified is going to be positioned in some of the losing categories in the in, in the in a category that's not doing great. But then, by definition, you're sort of exposed to the winning categories as well. Right. And good good portfolios are, are typically built in a way that not everything is going well all the time. Right. So, in a by trying to avoid risk by and then subsequently and in without being conscious of it, you're creating risk. Do you see that that comes with the lack of planning or do you see that from the actual allocation or from the, the, in the trading slash timing or all of the above or, or how does that actually apply? Well, I can maybe use a few examples to where we see that uh, emerge. For example, in the last 10 years, as is well documented in the financial media and in everyone's well-diversified portfolio, that uh, international investments, uh, both the developed world and the emerging economy, have woefully lagged the U.S. Uh, stock market. Right. And during this 10 years, it's been a big disappointment, and a lot of advisors are having to explain that to clients these days. And um, I think that some advisors and some some investors are, are giving up on that. And I think that that's where a mistake starts. Uh, because if you look at the period from 2000 to 2010, um, international investments um, um, outperformed the U.S. and, and helped, uh, helped, helped investment returns. Right. So... That's an example of you know um, looking and 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 giving up on something entirely, rather than just maybe changing the weighting uh, okay. that you have of something. Right. Um, it's okay to have different thematics uh, when investing, whether it's 
you're, you're posturing a little defensively or, or maybe a little less defensively. But to try to avoid that wholesale uh, swing in asset allocation based on the mood of the day or on recent performance trends uh, can really create a lot of risk when folks uh, um, take large um, ad hoc revisions to their asset allocation and to, into their investment policies. Um, and then, of course, uh, um, we all um, can have certain holdings in our portfolio that we love uh, because they've done so well. Um, examples might be, uh, I guess, uh, you know, an Amazon or an Apple that so many investors are enamored with. Right. Um, that kind of situation, um, um, you have to remember that investments uh, don't love back. They don't. They don't have feelings, and that um, we have to um, always check ourselves against um, um, our risk levels and, and know that um, even great companies with tremendous recent track records and long-term track records need to be continuously vetted against uh, the standards you have for how much of your portfolio you should have in those securities uh, and uh, continually reevaluate um, for the best positioning going forward. Oh, that makes perfect sense. So um, t- talking a little about, if you will, Rick, before we move on to the next question about if you go back to the investment strategy, you said you're fundamental and long-term in nature. Do you look for any individual securities? So individual stocks, do you look for undervalued stocks? And then, and, and to your point about, Overseas being left for dead, so to speak, or just you know un- undervalued or, or just not not looked at, and then also the Amazons and the Apples and the Fang stocks or the latest stocks du jour, the Nifty Fifty back in the day, those are being the overvalued ones. Do you look to constantly trim and move into the undervalued ones based on your analysis, or is it just let diversify it and and keep rebalancing? Well, we like to to you know obviously make the wise choices about the stocks that we're including, but maybe the best place to start is maybe what you want to exclude. And um, stocks that have um, um, business models that historically um, we don't think stand up real well or that have balance sheets that are very compromised because of the nature of the business, um, a lot of times we start by um, deciding from our opportunity set, what opportunities do we not really want to dig deeply on and sort of narrow down that investable universe a little bit by uh, steering clear of uh, super high um, debt levels as well as companies that have a lot of exciting story but no earnings uh, or operating cash flows that are really vulnerable or weak or um, try to stay away from things that can really be bad and then uh, to get um, market-like with the rest, uh, not to say uh, um, spot on to the index because we we don't weight so much in a market cap weighted way. We're more equally weighted. So you get a, a lot of difference right off the, the bat there. And then we love uh, free cash flow and we love to see healthy and growing free cash flow and a, and a reasonable dividend payout policy that has a considerable opportunity for dividends to be uh, increased uh, in the future, as well as safe in the present um, if there is an um, unforeseen setback with the company or with the broad economy. So we, we do like quality, um, and we do um, um, like to, to 
to focus a lot on cash flow statements and, and fundamental analysis. And then ultimately, we, we check our own predictive capacity and we, we recognize when we build our models, uh, how are we positioning differently than the broad market to make sure that we're not victims of what I was describing earlier uh, of being overconfident about our predictive capacity right. um, and ending up with uh, too much weight on one side of the canoe. <laughs> and uh, that's always uh, something to avoid. So we, we always are checking ourselves against where market indices are. Oh, so that, I guess that brings up two questions in my mind. Uh, one, do you guys incorporate technical analysis at all? Or does that come into the, in the equation? Uh, no, actually, um, you know, uh, from a point of interest, I think we all, um, you know, look at some very light technical analysis, but is, uh, in our process, it uh, doesn't play an important role. But we're, we're very fascinated by tech, technical analysis because we think in the short run, uh, there's enough people that are very focused on it, that it is a contributor to what the market's going to be doing in the, the shorter term. So it's important to kind of pay attention and know that that's going on. Uh, but it doesn't play a big role in our process. Okay, gotcha. And then the second question I thought came up as you were speaking, um, when to avoid the, I guess how you worded it, the owned person, the ability to predictive analysis, like the ability to um, accurately pick stocks at 100%, which is impossible. How do you actually avoid the group think or making sure that you're not, like you check yourself, or what are the, some of those metrics that you use to make sure that you're not just following the crowd? Well, I guess that starts with um, with the research process, and uh, um, we have two dedicated analysts here that are in our research team, and they're led by uh, my partner uh, and chief investment officer. And essentially, we we both interpret research and we kind of collect research. And what I mean by that is, um, we do our own fundamental analysis from the, the you know, 10K and Qs and, and, and do a lot of ratio analysis and, 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 and build up our own um, uh, case for a stock, our own uh, fundamental analysis. Um, and then we don't stop there because we love to then look at, after having done that, well, where does everyone else line up on this? And right. you can obviously pull down and collect a lot of other opinions um, about uh a stock's of fundamental value, and I don't know what's more interesting when you <laughs> when you find that your analysis actually agrees with the crowd, or whether um, when your analysis is significantly different than the crowd, or when the crowd itself is all over the map on what what different analysts and the community are saying about their fundamental view on a stock. So it, you're right in saying that it's an imprecise science and that you don't want to be a perfectionist. You just want to strive for excellence. Uh, you want to have procedural prudence and you want to do uh, the very best you can um, and acknowledge that it's an imperfect science. And if you're right, you know, six or seven times out of 10, you're really doing pretty good. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then uh, what about risk? When you, If you realize you're wrong in that imperfect science, how do you handle the risk side of the equation? Is it a percent below entry or is it just, hey, the fundamentals or I'm just wrong? Or I mean, how does that come into play, if you don't mind? Well, we yeah, that's uh, right at the heart of it, Adam, is one of the hardest things, uh, I, I think, in uh, security analysis and portfolio management is the sell side discipline. 
And we do not just hit a certain price and automatically sell. Okay. Um, we think that's sort of managing prices rather than managing and looking at the fundamentals. But we do have trigger points when a stock um, has fallen X market um, a certain amount. We're, we're pulling that back out and revisiting our original thesis. And obviously, there's likely going to be news or events or outcomes that are affecting that original thinking. So we then um, analyze that, those changing considerations, and, um, and, and compare it to the stock prices drop and, and try to make an, a, a determination as to whether we think that there's more selling to come uh, or perhaps that maybe there's been enough and actually too much. And uh, so each decision is independent. It's not just that a stock has gone down 20% that we're going to, you know, across the board, drop it out and sell it. Um, so it's always a, a revisiting of the original thinking and a determination made um, for each case. Uh, there's been some in the past that we had for the exit, and there's been others we've um, dollar cost average additional monies into the, uh, in, into the idea and that we thought that uh, a bad piece of news was was uh, fully reflected into the price and then some. So that you got to look at it, I think, each time independently and be prepared for what sometimes happens, which is um, when you get a little egg on your face and you get caught into a value trap and you analyze something and you hold on to it and face a bad news and the stock subsequently goes down more than you thought. That can happen, and that's why you diversify. Yeah, just to, uh, for the audience who's not familiar with the value trap, a value trap just explains a situation where you think there's value, but the stock keeps falling, and that value doesn't materialize in the time frame that you want. Correct? Correct. Yeah. And uh, it, at the heart of the value trap is um, why an investor always must diversify, uh, because no matter who's managing your money, yourself, a financial advisor, maybe you've just outsourced it to a to a, to a robot to run an index fund for you. But um, I guess when you're actively making decisions different than an index and a robot that just is replicating that, you, you have to make decisions. Um, and you're going to be, um, there's an element of, of, of um, unpredictability to it. And there's going to be decisions that you make uh, that are going to be wrong periodically. And that the, the objective is obviously to have very good standards and hold yourself accountable to your own standards about uh, revisiting and um, getting a fresh view on things um, and then diversify accordingly so that if you do have a disappointment, uh, hopefully on the other side of your portfolio, something's exceeding your wildest expectations and that helps to counteract that. Oh, that's a really, really good point. I guess my next Next question here is, what is some, I mean, outside of what you've already shared, but what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I guess uh, t timeless, uh, you know, I've always believed that, you know, when investing in a, in a down market, in a, in a bear market, in a situation where you're in a correction and prices are headed south, and you're inclined to want to sell to prevent the risk of losing more money. Uh, you actually are creating a larger risk of missing a sudden advance. Um, and understanding that all market declines uh, have proven to be temporary is really extremely, extremely important and valuable. I think uh, far too many people uh, that invest uh, make that mistake, um, even though there's countless um, um, 
studies and all sorts of uh, people out there to support investors uh, that that kind of visceral reaction a person gets when uh, they they pull up their portfolio on their phone or their computer and they see you know red um, that fight flight freeze instinct really takes over and uh, it isn't so much freeze so a lot of times it's the it's the flight uh, instinct and and I think it's so easy just to press the button and um, and be, be out of the market uh, right in the middle of a uh, snapback recovery and being out of it uh, that's really problematic and I think somewhat timeless uh, in that you really need to be prepared to how to how to how are you going to behave when things uh, are not perfect and when things are not going well and to kind of rewire the brain to try to look at those opportunities for making improvements in your portfolio you may have something that's down you know 20 percent that um, you can um, and you find another security that you like a lot that's down 40 percent uh, you can actually find opportunities in down markets and uh, seems a little funny saying that now with us at at or near market highs but um, it's an important uh, lesson because we won't always be at market highs that's a really good point how about rick finding value when in market highs <laughs> yeah finding Excuse value me. in market highs i think you have to be willing to um to kind of look and be a little contrarian possibly um i think when um, people are really, really right now down on uh, international investing. Uh, I, I just, I hear that over and over again. And, and certainly, the U.S. economy has 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 led the world. Uh, I think we we uh, addressed a lot of the issues coming out of the Great Recession uh, much better than uh, other governments. Whether it was um, we had to hold our nose and deal with the TARP program, the Treasury Asset Relief Program, long ago as well as uh, the fiscal side with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and then even more so the, 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 the efforts of the Federal Reserve, both on uh, quantitative easing, you know, one, two, and three, and all the, uh, all the loosening of monetary policy. I think all those things uh, positioned us for what this great 10 years has been, um, and, and, uh, and also is largely the explanation as to why we're so much ahead of uh, Europe and Japan economically. Um, there's other reasons as well, but I think we did a much better job policy-wise addressing those things, and we're enjoying that now. Um, but investors aren't investing, you know, with the returns of the last 10 years. We have to look forward to the future 10 years, and I think um, um, it's 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 a good opportunity now to look at the valuation on uh, um, emerging markets and, and Europe uh, and the advanced nations and recognize that they have a lot of room for improvement. Um, they're nowhere near um, where, where their potential is. Um, and to kind of uh, sometimes when you look at things that are not so great, uh, you have to look at it with, with an optimistic view that uh, things can get better. And if that's the case, and you get some better earnings out of these companies and, and higher PEs uh, than today, I, th I think we could find ourselves looking back in 2030, looking back at this opportunity saying, wow, uh, markets do change, and, um, and, and sometimes there's value right under our nose. Right. That's a really good point. So um, I guess, Rick, from my before I go on to the, the mistakes people make, I want to ask you just to clarify a little bit for me the 
lesson with human nature when in down markets that you just said for the, the great, you know, some timeless lessons and how to be able to um, expect how you're going to behave, if you will, and then almost do the opposite at, at some points. But how do you quantify that for the average person out there, the investor who says, you know what, I understand bear markets happen. It's a matter of when, not if the next bear market occurs, you know, okay, that's great in theory, but when the bullets are actually flying and markets are falling, you know, 800 points a day, 1,000 points a day, or whatever the case may be in the future, on a percent basis, probably be even more than that. Um, what, what type of, if any, rules do you have in a bear market? Or do you even adjust your portfolio, assuming that you see a recession coming and or a bear market happening? Or is it just a matter of being disciplined, saying, hey, you know what, these stocks are good, there's good value here, we'll ride it out. If you could talk a little about that, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that uh, in order to be a bold investor um, in a in a period of time when one's losing money and markets feel as if they're falling apart around you, you best have a very good financial plan uh, because a financial plan will help um, embolden you because if it's done well and you have in uh, your short-term and intermediate need for money well covered by cash equivalents and, and ultra short-term and short-term bonds and you and you have adequate cash flows for all your needs, you are in the position uh, and you have the ability to weather the storm. Um, now, getting back to the willingness to weather the storm, um, if you don't have the ability, you're definitely not going to have the willingness. You're just going to fall apart. So um, first and foremost, having a, a well-thought-out financial plan uh, and then, of course, on the on the uh, the other side of you know it, being in that environment, uh, it's it's oftentimes appropriate to to look and and portfolios uh, uh, be balanced at some level. Uh, you know, someone with a moderate uh, um, degree of risk might have something like twenty uh, percent that's not in the stock market to begin with, and um, to have a little dry powder um, in an environment where things are really uh, really kind of falling apart, uh, it, it can be, um, um, it, it can really strengthen the resolve to have a little bit of money to be able to buy some, some companies you have a great deal of confidence in that you know have very strong balance sheets and they have enduring important products protected by long-term patents and, and you know that the company is going to weather whatever economic calamity is going on at that time. Uh, to, to be able to use some of that dry powder very gradually, um, because uh, sometimes uh, downturns can persist for a long time and they can sometimes go down further than you might originally suspect. But to be able to kind of rebalance into equities, um, it can be really empowering. Um, but if you have the wrong financial plan um, and you're you're kind of shooting from the hip in the middle of that and not the time to think about how you're going to behave when that happens isn't once it happens. It's when you're at a market high. Uh, and to, 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 to work through your strategy, um, to, to have an investment policy statement that talks about um, uh, your rebalancing parameters and guidelines and what kind of you know, mandate do you have for the portfolio so that you're more likely to have a cool head. Um, not for sure, because it, it, it is uh, emotional, but uh, you're more likely to have it if you've equipped yourself um, prior to ever entering that environment. Got it. No, that makes perfect sense. And then um, I guess next question here, what are some timeless mistakes you see people make and how, how can they avoid them? 
Yeah, I think uh, one of the maybe the big mistakes we see is that people really um, think of the operative part of their financial future is their investment performance. You know, it's hard not to want to have great performance. Um, um, but I think that when people equate too much importance on performance, they they miss the boat. The, 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 the more important thing, the more operative thing is controlling the level of one's spending, whether you're in the accumulation phase of life or whether you're in the distribution phase of life where you're, you're retired and you're spending your portfolio. This is something that is absolutely within one's control, and it is the true uh, fuel for having a good financial outcome in the future. Because we all know that as, as, as students of history of markets, um, different decades have different results, and we don't get to control that. Um, the economy, the markets, and the prices of stocks yeah, are something that are just simply out of our control. And that I think that um, when when people put too much weight on performance, um it, it, it takes away um, that control element to really focus on cash flow planning and budgeting is not always what people want to hear, um, but they much rather uh, they much rather uh, think that their financial advisor is going to somehow have the secret sauce that, that yeah. gives them <laughs> the great returns that's going to fuel their their financial future. And I think that's a that that's a big mistake. I, I think instead um, you kind of want to plan for the worst and hope, you know, for the best and, 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 and focusing on those areas of your life you can control. And so if you're relying on great returns to bail you out, um, I, I think that's a, that's a big mistake. And I would encourage people to really focus their lives in a way that, um, um, is centered on the things they can control. And then whether the uh, S&P has a, 5% annualized compounded rate of return this next decade, or whether it's a 12% annualized compounded rate of return, um, you're going to want to make sure you're saving enough that under either, either scenario, you're going to be okay. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, too. And plus, it speaks to your earlier point, too, about un the unpredictable fact factor, and you can't control what happens decade to decade, and things change. So, you know, Volcker just passed away recently, and we saw what happened in the economy and inflation and stack, like all the crazy stuff that happened when he was at the helm of the central bank. So, and how different that world is than the world we are in today with the current metrics where they are. So that's a really, really good point too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, you know, as, as you go back to, if you had any economics classes and, and, and going back in you know, 20, 30 years, there wasn't a whole lot of people talking about, you know, trillions of dollars of sovereign debt at negative interest rates. It right. Just, it just wasn't in the books, and we didn't really get exposed to it. So that just speaks to how how different um, each environment uh, is when you're in it. And so, um, real real important to to understand how you know decade to decade things are going to be very different. Yeah, or even go back and tell somebody it's unfathomable that stock markets at record highs, ten year bull market, inflation's low, and the Fed cuts rates a handful of times in a few months. You know period now, where we are in the cycle so yeah. with, with with the yeah. fed funds rate where it is i mean it's crazy yeah it really makes you want to if anything focus on what you can control because it just seems that in in today's world of 24 7 media and, and social media and everything else uh that 
it can actually, I think, provoke a little bit of investor anxiety and that kind of thing. Um, it, the way to, to alleviate some of that is to to roll up your sleeves and uh, set your goals that are hopefully in alignment with your values, uh, and and then uh, it, it sort of becomes a math problem. And and per, performance and returns are one of the variables you're going to put into an equation, but it's not the only variable. Right. So you can look you can look at the whether it's the Type of house you're living in, the type of car you're driving, uh, um, how you're living your life, um, what you can do to um, improve other variables that will hopefully go into an equation that uh, on the other end comes out a really great life that uh, is purposeful and achieving your uh, your dreams. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I guess because I know we're running short on time, and I thank you kindly, Rick, for all the great advice and, and just you know spending the time with us today. What is the best piece of advice? you can share with the audience today? Well, um, you know, that, I, I, that's a tough one, but I, I would say that, you know, happiness uh, is something that I feel like I'm a, a, an amateur um, um, uh, practitioner of happiness. And and I guess having been in this business for, for now, you know, 23 years at Parsec and a couple, handful of years before Parsec, I really realize that it's a universal goal. I mean, more than ever in my life, I just see how it's universally sought after um, by all investors is, is happiness, and it can be elusive. Um, it is not. It is not a financial uh, goal. Now, certainly, um, financial security is a really important prerequisite, I think, to getting into a sustained state of happiness, and that you you really have to to be satisfied and. And also, uh, at some level, just grateful for what you have, and and then, uh, and probably only then, are we really going to get to a place of lasting happiness, or or or, or at least satisfaction? Um, and I and I think that for me, as I work with clients, and and for Parsec, as we're um, working with our community of clients, we're really trying to keep that in the front of their uh, of their goals. That it, it's it's about more than just accumulating more. It's about uh, Achieving a, a level of, of of happiness in life and um, and satisfaction with what we have and and um, I guess that would be it is to is to work hard uh, to create the the best environment for for ultimately being happy. Gotcha. So that's actually a really good point too because in my um, I have a book coming out called Psychological Analysis which talks about a lot of the things that you mentioned. But one of those things is similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where I have my own little investor's hierarchy of needs, and I've got happiness right there at the top of the uh, the pyramid, so to speak. So it's a it's uh, smell what you're cooking, 150 um, percent. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Before we wrap up here, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, thank you, Adam. Um, we have uh, six offices in North Carolina, and we always love uh, a face to face kind of get acquainted meeting, uh, no obligation, just getting together with people to learn about, um, you know, learn about them and, and, and to explain what we do and to see where there's that, that good fit. Uh, but of course that's not always easy and visiting parsecfinancial.com is always the easiest step. And then, uh, through that site, uh, um, it's real easy to contact us and, and we love to meet new people and, uh, we love to be of service to others. I love it. Well, thank you, Rick, so much for being on the show. This was really a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. It really was a lot of fun. Thank you.